Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast, episode number 261. I'm your host, as always, Philip Hansen. Now, before I get into the stories, I would like to say thank you to all of the people who have donated to the Stone Pages website. Both Diego and I thank you for helping keeping up the Stone Pages website, which means we can keep delivering you these news and also the podcast. I would also like to remind you that donations are not only accepted during December, but throughout the entire year. So if you do happen to find any spare change between the couch cushions, um, I'm sure we will gladly accept those throughout the year. Now, uh, I would like to get into the stories. And before we get into that, let's have a short coverage of them. As always, the stories are brought to you from various sources around the web. And if you're curious about those sources, you can go to news.stonepages.com where you can find the links to all of our stories as well as to all of the sources and any stories that we may have missed. Now, starting off on a good old tradition, we have the go-ahead to a road tunnel under Stonehenge, which is quite controversial. Then we have prehistoric pottery figurines unearthed in China. After that, we are looking at Neanderthals being rock collectors, which is probably a breaking bad joke somewhere, I'm sure. And we have a question of who wiped out the Australian megafauna. Was it humans or was it the climate? Then we have an answer to the long-awaited question about who was associated with the Chattel Peronian tool technology. Spoilers, it's Neanderthals. Then we have some medieval news for once, which is actually accidental medieval news around a standing stone in Scotland. After that, we have some much-loved ceramics from Anatolia, specifically Iron Age Anatolia. Then we have a Sicilian ancient calendar rock which has been recently found and then last but certainly not least we have a 6,000 year old clay fragment being identified as part of a face mask and now without further ado ladies and gentlemen let's get into the stories and for our first story of 2017 on the first episode of the podcast in 2017 we have a stonehenge story so staying very true to form as always now, this story is specifically about the road tunnel under Stonehenge, which we did cover a few times last year, I do believe, and it has now received the go-ahead for construction. And, as always, this reignites the controversy over improving the major roads around the ancient site. Now, the man in charge of turning the whole length of the A303 road, which is a road that passes alongside Stonehenge within a few hundred meters, into a dual carriageway through a 1.8-mile tunnel, is Chris Grayling, the British Secretary of State for Transport. It is worth noting that more than 24,000 vehicles pass Stonehenge on that road every single day, which uh, campaigners have said disrupt the peace and tranquility of the World Heritage Site. Grayling said the tunnel could enhance the Stonehenge site by removing traffic. Now, while Grayling says that the tunnel could enhance the Stonehenge site by removing traffic, which is a move supported by English Heritage and the National Trust, it has also been discussed that it could irreparably damage the World Heritage Site. This has been noted by two historians, Dan Snow and Tom Holland, who attacked the proposals. Dan Snow is the president of the Council for British Archaeology and said we have recently started to realize that the Standing Stones are just the beginning. They said at the heart of the world's most significant and best-preserved Stone Age landscape. The government's plans endanger this unique site. He also adds there is so much waiting to be learned about how Stonehenge was built, if we decide as a country not to sacrifice it to road building. The battle to save our most significant Neolithic landscape is an unending one. Tom Holland of course agrees with Dan Snow, saying there is so much waiting to be learned about how Stonehenge was built, 
if we decide as a country not to sacrifice it to road building. The battle to save our most significant Neolithic landscape is an unending one. It staggers belief that we can inject enormous quantities of concrete to build a tunnel that will at best last a hundred years, and therefore decimate a landscape that has lasted for millennia. The aforementioned gentlemen are not alone. Andy Rintut, who is the chairman of Amesbury Museum and president of the local chamber of commerce, says that the destructive tunnel will put a time bomb of irreversible destruction on one of the world's greatest untouched landscapes. However, not all archaeologists agree, like Mike Hayworth, who's director at the Council for British Archaeology, who says, ideally, we would like a longer tunnel. There's no doubt there will be benefits to removing the A303 from the immediate vicinity of Stonehenge, but there will be potential damage if the portals are in sensitive locations. It is a very sensitive archaeological landscape. Ideally, we want it to avoid sensitive areas and to make sure it doesn't have any impact on views or the setting. There was a plan for a 2.7-mile tunnel, and everybody regarded that as the gold standard, but obviously, we have to be realistic about the state of public finances. Now, this is not a tiny project. Up to two billion pounds, which is $2.4 billion, or 2.3 billion euros, is being spent on the A303 and other works in the southwest as part of a 15 billion pound row strategy announced in 2014. Now, the proposal for the tunnel is not a new one. It was announced back in 1989, but it has been repeatedly shelled. The current plans will be put out to public consultation until the 5th of March, and following the consultation, the preferred route will be announced later in 2017 and will be subject to the completion of statutory procedures for development consent. The goal is to start work in 2020 and completing the new Southwest Expressway by 2029. No matter what your view is on the tunnel, uh, if you are, have an interest in it, if you don't want it to go through, or if you do want it to go through, do make sure to check those out. Uh, I'm sure you can find the link if you follow the sources on stonepages.com under the news section. And for our next story, we have one focused on pottery, specifically pottery figurines unearthed in China. The figurines in question were unearthed in central China's Hunan province by local archaeologists and were specifically found at what is known as the Suqiagang site of Changde City. One of the figurines is a human figurine about the size of an adult's palm. That is a regular-sized adult, not a Trump-sized uh, adult, and it was about 4,000 years old. The face is also very well preserved. Apart from this figurine, there were also pottery birds found at the Tangling relic site, which is about 50 kilometers away. Wang Liangxi, who headed the archaeological team, said that these figurines were used in sacrificial rituals. And Guo Waimin, who is the head of the Hunan Provincial Institute of Cultural Relics and Archaeology, that's quite a mouthful, said that the discovery is helpful for studying the prehistoric culture of central China. Our next story aims to ask, were the Neanderthals rock collectors? And so far, the answer is yes. This question was answered by an international team of researchers who focused their attention on one piece of split limestone from the Krapina cave site in Croatia. This rock suggests that Neanderthals some 130,000 years ago purposely collected the rock for a purpose apart from making a tool or anything functional. Now, for anyone unfamiliar with the uh, geology of the area, the cave is mainly sandstone, so the limestone actually stood out from the more than 1,000 other stone artifacts collected from the site. The find also adds to other recent evidence that Neanderthals were capable of incorporating symbolic objects into their culture. It is worth noting that this group did publish an article in 2015 where they found a set of 
eagle talons uh, from the same site, which had been fashioned into jewelry, which I believe we might have covered on the podcast, but I am not certain. David Freyer, who is a professor emeritus of anthropology and the co-author of the study, says the rock is roughly 125 millimeters long, 100 millimeters high, and about 13 millimeters thick, and shows no striking platforms or other areas for preparation. The fact that it wasn't modified to us, it meant that it was brought there for a purpose other than being used as a tool. Now, while we can guess till kingdom come about the why of the matter, the how is relatively easier to answer. There are two main options for how the piece of limestone could have ended in the cave. The Neanderthal in question could either have collected it from a rocky outcrop of grey limestone a few kilometers north of the site, or found it where the stream had transported it closer to the cave. Now, the limestone is very distinct due to the natural mineral inclusions that are visible as many black lines in the brown limestone, which gives it the very unusual appearance. From the find, Freyer concludes, it adds to the number of other recent studies about Neanderthals doing things that are thought to be unique to the modern Homo sapiens. We contend they had a curiosity and symbolic-like capacities typical of modern humans. Now, I believe this isn't the first time we've talked about this. There was, quite recently, I believe, a story on Neanderthals actually decorating jewelry, which again, kind of speaks to the cognitive ability of said Neanderthals. And for our next story, we have the question of, did humans wipe out Australian megafauna? And as it turns out, we might actually have, which then begs the question, is Australia out to kill us due to evolution, or is it considered payback? Now, to set the scene, some 50,000 years ago, Australia did have megafauna, which included half-ton kangaroos, two-ton wombats, seven-meter-long lizards, 180-kilo flightless birds, 140-kilo marsupial lions, and tortoises the size of compact cars. All in all, Australia has only gotten less frightening in the years. Now, shortly after the arrival of the first humans, sometime around 45,000 years ago, more than 85% of Australia's mammals, birds, and reptiles weighing over 45 kilos went extinct. And new evidence suggests that humans, not climate change, were the cause. Now, the causes of the Australian megafauna extinction have been debated by scientists for decades. Recently, a team of researchers used information from a sediment core drilled in the Indian Ocean off the coast of southwest Australia to help reconstruct the past climate and ecosystems on the continent. Now, as with humans, one of the best things to study is the deposits, and in this case, it is dung. And this dung contained pollen, dust, and ash, and spores from a fungus that thrived on the dung of plant-eating mammals. Now, the fungal spores allowed the scientists to study how the concentration changed over time, and they could actually show that the spores themselves were abundant in the plant-eating mammal dung in the sediment layers until sometime around 45,000 years ago, after which they declined rapidly over just a few thousand years. Now, this is important because Southwest Australia is one of the few regions on that continent that has dense forests now as well as 45,000 years ago. And this area also contains the earliest evidence of humans on the continent. Professor Gifford Miller, who is a study participant and a teacher at Colorado University, said that there is no evidence of significant climate change during the time of the megafauna extinction, and the real cause may have been imperceptible overkill. A study in 2006 indicated that low-intensity hunting, like the killing of one juvenile mammal per person per decade, could have resulted in the extinction of a species in just a few hundred years. 
And now for the most important story of the day. Neanderthals have been associated with the Chatel Peronian tool technology. For those of you like myself who didn't know what the Chatel Peronian tool technology is, it is a transitional tool-making industry from central and southwestern France and northern Spain. This happy news is brought to us by an international team, which was led by the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany, who demonstrated that Neanderthals were responsible for the Chatel Peronian tool technology. Now, transitional industries are key to understanding the process by which modern humans replaced the Neanderthals in Western Eurasia at the beginning of the Upper Paleolithic, which lies between 50,000 and 40,000 years ago. Now, this is because the older Mosterian industry of the Middle Paleolithic in Europe can be clearly attributed to the Neanderthals, while the late Upper Paleolithic assemblages are attributed to modern humans. So therefore, the Chatel Peronian industry lies somewhere in the middle, and it has been disputed for quite some time who made them. Now, the Chatel Peronian assemblages come from the widely separated Grotte d'Orenay and Saint-Césaire archaeological sites in France. Both sites have yielded well-identified Neanderthal remains, and at Grotte d'Orenay, 200 kilometers southeast of Paris, Chatel Peronian layers have also produced sophisticated bone tools and body ornaments. Now, the team has identified 28 additional homonym specimens among the previously unidentifiable bone fragments at Grotte d'Orenay through peptide mass fingerprinting. It is believed that the bone fragments most likely represent the remains of a single immature breastfed individual with radiocarbonating consistent with Neanderthal ancestry. Matthew Collins, who is a professor at the University of York and the study's co-author, said these methods open up new avenues of research throughout light Pleistocene contexts in which hominem remains are scarce and where the biological nature of remains is unclear due to ancient DNA not being preserved. Professor Sean Schalks-Hoblin the study's co-author and director of the Department of Human Evolution at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology also says the process of replacement of archaic local populations by modern humans in Eurasia is still poorly understood, as the makers of many Paleolithic toolkits of this time period remain unknown. This type of research now allows us to extract unrecognizable human fragments out of large archaeological assemblages and to revisit the mode and the tempo of this major event in human evolution with fresh material. Alright ladies and gentlemen, and now for our next story, it's something that actually has me quite excited. Not only because I'm sure it will make David Connolly very happy to hear about this, but also because it is one of the few medieval news stories we have on this website. Now, this is, of course, pertaining to the fact that standing stones in Scotland have been linked to a 1314 battle. This is after radiocarbon dating on a pair of standing stones near the entrance to Police Scotland Central Division's Randall Field HQ in Stirling. The radiocarbon dates show that the stones are not prehistoric as they were originally believed to be, but were instead erected around the time of the first major victory of the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. The conclusion now is that the stones were erected to mark the spot where Sir Thomas Randolph, Earl of Moray, and a commander of Robert the Bruce's army routed around 300 English cavalry on the first day of the battle. Previously, it was believed that the stones were positioned more than 3,000 years ago in alignment with an ancient burial ground nearby, and also possibly used as landmarks in the battle. Now, Dr. Murray Cook, who is the Stirling Council's archaeologist, originally excavated the site close to the 700th anniversary of the battle two years ago, which is now three years ago, I guess. And this year, he actually obtained further funding to radiocarbon date one of the stone's foundations. 
Dr. Cook said these stones have been linked to Randolph skirmish, though I thought they were more likely to be prehistoric and possibly incorporated into the battle. This year, I received funding, and I have now obtained a radiocarbon date in association with the foundation of the stone. The date that came up is contemporary with the battle. It raises the very real possibility that the stones were constructed to mark the site of Randolph's victory on the first day. Now, for all the Scots listening to this podcast, I'm sure you'll be happy to hear, but also probably know, that the victory not only prevented the English from achieving their aim of reaching Stirling Castle, but also set the Scots up for a historic victory over King Edward II's much larger army the following day. The stones are said to come from the city's Castle Rock, and would have been put in the ground to commemorate the event like a modern-day plaque. Police Scotland did give permission to the experts to investigate the stones on their property, and have also said that the stones will be made more accessible and visible to the public following the new discovery. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen, the one and probably last piece of medieval news we will be hearing the rest of this year. And moving on from the Middle Ages, we have another story that is quite interesting to me, which is scientific analysis of pottery, specifically Cypriot-style ceramics in Iron Age Anatolia. Now, archaeologically, we know that Cypriot-style ceramics were popular in Anatolia, which is present-day Turkey, during the Iron Age. But, new research shows that some of the vessels were produced locally and not imported from central and southern Cyprus, which requires a major revision of our understanding of economic interaction in the eastern Mediterranean in the first millennium BCE. The research was done by Stephen Karakik from Florida State University and James Osborne from the University of Chicago. They analyzed the chemical composition of ceramics found at three sites in southern Turkey's Hatay region. They found that imported and local Cypriot-style ceramics contained different chemical signatures, which helped them determine where they were produced. This suggests that the ancient people from Chatal Huyayik and Tel Judayada bought imported ceramics from Cyprus, while those in Tel Tayinat bought a mixture of locally made and imported Cypriot-style objects. Now, while there are many ways to determine the provenance of ceramics, one of these being thin section analysis, this is also very destructive. So, opting for a non-destructive method, what they did was they used X-ray fluorescence testing, which again can be destructive unless you're using a portable XRF machine, which is exactly what they did. Now, when you're using XRF, you bombard the ceramic with high-energy X-rays. As the atoms absorb the energy, they emit a small amount of energy themselves, which produce different chemical signatures, and this provides clues to the object's composition. Now what this tells us is that local ceramics from Tel Tayanat, which are produced locally but not in the Cypriot style, had a certain emission signature, while Cypriot style ceramics from Chatal Huyik and Tel Juadayada had a different signature. This then showed that the Cypriot style ceramics from Tel Tayanat were split between these two. To confirm this result, they used neutron activation analysis, again bombarding a sample with neutrons, causing the elements within to form radioactive isotopes whose distinctive emissions and decay paths are analyzed to expose the elemental composition of the sample. Now, what this showed was that some of these Cypriot-style ceramics from Tel Tayinat were produced locally and are not from Cyprus. This then led Karakik and Osborne to suspect that feasting practices among the wealthy in Tel Tayanit drove demand for Cypriot-style ceramics, and the local potters either copied the style or Cypriot potters moved to Anatolia to be nearer to their customers. Now, I will admit that this is actually a quite 
uh, terse look into it. If you want to read the entire article, you can actually follow the source on news.stonepages.com where you can find the article. And this is actually a 17-page article, which is open access, so you can actually look it up on Google. And it is a fantastic article. Like I said, 17 pages and just very, very good pictures and drawings of the ceramics themselves. I would definitely recommend following that up. And now for our second to last story, we have the Italians finding an ancient calendar rock in Sicily. The calendar rock in question features a 3.2 foot diameter hole and is placed with a lot of other rocks in a formation that is believed to have marked the beginning of winter some 5,000 years ago. The holy Neolithic rock was discovered on the 30th of November in 2016 on a hill near a prehistoric necropolis six miles from Gela, Sicily, Italy, by the archaeologists Giuseppe Laspina, Michele Cuoto, and Mayo Bacchiavinci while they were conducting surveys of World War II-era bunkers. Laspina said, It appeared clear to me that we were dealing with a deliberate man-made hole. However, we needed the necessary empirical evidence to prove the stone was used as a prehistoric calendar to measure the seasons. To measure this, they used a compass, cameras, and a video camera mounted to a GPS-equipped drone, and through this, Lespina and her colleagues carried out a test in December at the winter solstice. The belief was that the sun would rise and hit the hole perfectly, which it actually did. According to Lespina, at 7.32 a.m., the sun shone brightly through the hole with an incredible precision. It was amazing. Now, the 23-foot-high hold stone would have marked the turning point of the year and the seasons, anticipating some hard and cold times ahead. Whether that is cold for the Italians or cold in general, I'm not certain. Now, the moment most likely had some ritual importance, and in fact, further investigation of the area revealed the site was a sacred place at the end of the 3rd millennium BCE. Not far from the Holdstone, the researchers also found several intact burials known as Cotticella tombs, which were excavated in the rock, and these chamber tombs were the main form of burial for the Castelluccio culture that flourished in the Sicilian Early Bronze Age. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the story, the calendar rock is not alone, and along with this calendar rock, there was a menhir close by, or at least to the east of it. Now, the stone is 16.4 feet high, but is currently laying on the ground, though there is a pit near its base suggesting the megalith was originally standing upright. Laspina said it stood at a distance of 26 feet right in front of the rock's hole. Now, what is most interesting is that the geological composition of the calendar rock and the menhir are different, which indicates that the monolite was cut and brought to the site from elsewhere. According to Laspina, this obviously reinforces the sacrality of the site. Now, at least two other holdstones have been found in Sicily in the past, with archaeoastronomy expert Alberto Scudieri saying the newly found calendar rock appears to have been made by the same hand that carved the other two rocks. Apart from being an archaeoastronomy expert, Albert Scuderi is the regional director of Italian archaeologist groups, and uh, Scuderi also discovered the two holdstones near Palermo. Now, according to Giulio Amari, who is a professor of archaeoastronomy at Milan's Polytechnic University, the finding is very interesting, especially when associated to two holdstones found in the past. He says more research and scientific measurements must be taken, 
adding that we should not consider the holdstones as a precise calendar or an instrument to observe the sun's cycle, but rather monuments that provided information on solstices for practical and agricultural purposes. And now for our last story, a 6,000-year-old clay fragment has been identified as part of a face mask. Now, let's set the scene. We are currently in southern Germany. And 6,000 years ago, we are currently in the Neolithic period. And you have to imagine people lived in lake dwellings built on stilts, much like what we see at Must Farm. They bred cattle, farmed the land, and foraged, meaning their lives have become sedentary. Now, to bring it up to modern-day period, archaeologists in the German state of Baden-Württemberg have revealed a fragment of brown clay which had found to be one side of a face mask, specifically the right-hand side. This is the first mask found not only in the lake settlements, which existed all around the Alps, but anywhere in Central Europe, with only two other Neolithic clay masks have been found anywhere else in Europe, one in Hungary and the other one in Romania. Now, the fragment was originally discovered in the 1960s, and uh, after many failed efforts to class it as a piece of pottery, it remained unidentified until quite recently, when one archaeologist supposedly held the broken edge of the fragment up to a mirror and suddenly saw what it was. I'm guessing most likely screwing around or slightly bored. However, it is important to note that this is no death mask, but a ritual object worn by the living. This is based on the fact that the section which would have gone over the nose is very carefully made smooth, and the piece also has holes on the side for attaching some kind of cord, which could have held it in place on the wearer's head. Now, this story just goes to show, much like I tell anybody else who's working with archaeology, that the interesting stuff is not always the gold and the silver. Sometimes it's just as boring as pottery, or clay fragments anyways. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, and with that story, we have reached the end of this podcast, I'm sad to say. However, if you did enjoy the stories and you want to read more, you can always go to news.stonepages.com to look at all of the stories that we covered today and the sources, as well as any stories that we may have missed. Apart from this, you are also free to send me an email at philip at stonepages.com, that is P-H-I-L-I-P at stonepages.com, or you can follow the link in the RSS feed. If you are going to send me an email, feel free to tell me your favorite story from this podcast or any other podcast, or... Are there some stories that you wish we would have covered? I definitely know my personal favorite from today is a toss-up between the stone from 1314 and the Cypriot-style ceramics from Iron Age Anatolia. So now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to say thank you for this time, and I will see you next podcast.